Hello, hello, and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Well, this week we have Oren McIntyre on the show. Oren is a columnist and host over at The Blaze. However, he first rose to prominence in what I think we can call the ashes of the intellectual dark web. He's part of a group of interesting new thinkers, uh, often referred to as the dissident right. These are folks like Curtis Yarvin and the academic agent, people whose worldview relies heavily on what is called elite theory. Thinkers like Carl Schmitt, Victor Pareto, Oswald Spengler, these are recurrent names in the writing and YouTube videos of the dissident right. So we wanted to sit down with Oren, understand his worldview, uh, talk about the demise of the IDW, uh, talk about right-wing tensions, uh, techno-optimists versus more traditionalist or theological modes of thinking, and much, much more. Do remember that you can get this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you would like to become a paid ISF supporter, you can do so by clicking the link down below. But without further ado, I give you Oren McIntyre. Okay, we're here with Oren McIntyre. Oren, thank you for uh, coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys. So, Oren, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a bit about yourself, your political uh, background, your your political journey so far. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I got started a few years ago. I was a political reporter. I had worked in... Uh, kind of local Republican politics, and then eventually became a uh, reporter for a local paper on kind of news and, and uh, crime and, and politics specifically. And then I ended up, uh, you know, around the 2020 or, you know, the 2016 election, there was a lot of questions about kind of what was going on. And then in 2020, with uh, COVID and everything, I started saying, okay, maybe politics doesn't work the way I thought it did. And so I started reading a lot of kind of older political pe uh, thinkers, people kind of outside the mainstream, and uh, started recording uh, my thoughts about that on YouTube. I've uh, been doing that for a few years, and I just uh, started as a columnist and a host over at The Blaze. Awesome. Yeah. And um, Oren, I think I had reached out to you maybe a year ago. I was teaching a class, and I actually threw in, we were doing Plato's Republic, and the idea that democracies have always been a sham. That's Plato's view anyway. And his idea is that there's always a kind of implicit oligarchy shaping public mm -hmm. opinion, and then they elicit it for their own ends and so on. And I actually had them listen to one of your accounts of Moldbug. So you did make your way into the college <laughs> curriculum, which is kind of fun. But I wanted to... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, always good to know it's being used somewhere. Yeah, that's good. That's, yeah. that's a good one. But no surprise, I'm no longer teaching college classes. So, um, anyway. <laughs> that was it. That was the that was the final straw. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't the reason, but yeah, oh, yeah. Um, hopefully, yeah. I didn't get you canceled over there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I self canceled a few months a few months after that. So, okay. I wanted to actually start by just asking you about your post a few hours ago, which is on basically this racial imposter syndrome. There was another case, not just Rachel Dolezal and Sean King, but a recent case in Wisconsin, I'll ask you to describe it, but I wanted to sort of frame it first, which is you mentioned that if we really lived in a kind of white supremacy, as it's often said by, by leftists, people probably would pretend to be white, not non-white, right, to, to reap the right. benefits. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you to describe the case and then ask why you think this keeps happening. Is it is it simply that people want the obvious benefits from, from governments and corporations? Or is there some deeper psychology going on here? Um, what do you think? Yeah, well, the, the incident you're talking about was this woman up in Wisconsin. And she had, I, I, from my understanding, the, from the prior reporting, uh, she had self-identified herself as a white woman on Facebook, that kind of thing. And then kind of all of a sudden, she got a lot tanner and her hair got a lot darker. And she started uh, a, a describing herself as a two-spirit. Um, and then she started a or she helped to start a, a queer indigenous um, art installation, you know, kind of a commune of some of some sort. And she she uh, went so far again, allegedly uh, to, to purchase uh, Native American items off of Etsy and then sell them as her own under this kind of you know, this art. And she got herself a, a, 
some benefits from it. She got speaking opportunities and she received an artist stipend and she got some kind of uh, installation over the University of Wisconsin. And, you know, she got found out eventually. People kind of figured it out. And there's a lot the the outrage that usually comes with this. But yeah, my piece was basically like, well, of course, this is the case. You know, it, we're told that we live in the system of white supremacy. We're told that, you know, whiteness is this evil specter that haunts our, our civilization and has to be purged, you know, from uh, from American institutions, that kind of thing. But the very clear incentives are that people need to find a way to be basically anything but white, right? Like this woman understood that as a random white woman, she didn't have any sway when it came to the artist, artistic world. But if she became suddenly some form of minority, or in her case, two minorities, as she attached a sexual <laughs> minority as well, then all of a sudden she could just buy random stuff, you know, off of a website, sell it as her own. And all of a sudden she's an up and coming indigenous queer artist with a, you know, installation over at a major university. So the, the yeah. incentives are very clear and they aren't for people to identify as white. They're to code themselves anything else. Do you think as a follow-up to that, there might be something else going on as well, which is, so you mentioned like material reasons to do this. I mean, she could actually make money doing this and, 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 and get a little bit of fame, I, I suppose, as well. But, you know, I kind of connect this actually with teenage girls in particular turning trans in the sense that you've heard the term victimhood culture. There's a kind of reverse moral hierarchy going on so that you know, whites and especially white men, but I suppose to a lesser extent, white girls are considered in, in a way, you know, the, the moral inferiors in our society, right? They're, they're the oppressor, not the victim. And so, you know, it's no surprise, at least in my view, that you see more whites going trans and white girls in particular in their teenage years going trans because the incentives are to, to, to be a victim, but also psychologically, you know, if you want to be promoted in, in, in some way in our society, in your classroom, you need to present yourself that way. Do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think that's a, a separate issue? No, I mean, that's a huge part of it as well. The, the benefits are material, but they're also moral, they're spiritual, they're, they're yeah. everything else. When your entire society, I mean, look, we have a whole industry of best-selling authors going into corporations and educational institutions and giving seminars about how, how to eradicate whiteness from their, you know, from their uh, uh, from their teaching strategies, from their corporate, uh, you know, design, all of this stuff, remove these influences. If you are taught at every level that this identity is bad, that the people who held it were bad, that they were uniquely historically evil and are responsible for all the injustices that are now being seen around your society. I mean, how could you not take away that you should take really any opportunity to avoid this, even if this doesn't impact you spiritually, which it probably does, it will certainly impact your day to day interactions, you want to have those, you know, uh, minority privilege points so that you're able to shunt some part of that guilt. So you're not the one, you know, straight white woman or man in the office that everybody's dumping on because you've got these, you know, these different things that have lined up that are no longer favored among your peers. Yeah. I know Matt wants to ask you about the, the intellectual dark web, this now defunct IDW, but I wanted to, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you a sort of related question to the first, which is one of your best phrases. And that is nonsense as a uniform. And um, I wanted to ask you why it seems to be on one side of the political aisle. So the idea is something like, uh, certain people say things that are so obviously false, only an intellectual could believe them. You know, there are no sex differences, whatever, whatever denial of reality is, is sort of in vogue in the day. Why do you think that this is, it seems to be anyway, a, a leftist phenomenon? Would the right, if they were in power, be playing similar games? Or is this something to do with like the political psychology of the left? What do you think about this? Well, I mean, th this is one of Curtis Yarvin's phrases, and it's really good for a reason. You, the left is, by its nature, about the disassembling of hierarchies, the flattening of n kind of natural situations, the dismantling of kind of what you would expect in a 
functioning society in a lot of ways. And so because of that, they often, you know, can organize around this principle. If you're willing to buy in to the idea that a man can become a woman, or if you're willing to buy in to the idea that, you know, there, there's just no, there, there's no benefit to having traditional gender roles or that kind of thing. Well, then you can be on this team. If you're, if you're willing to make these sacrifices, then you must be. Now, to be clear, there are, people could, uh, you know, expand this to something else. They could say, oh, well, you could say this about religion, right? Like if you're all willing to say that, you know, Yahweh is up in the sky, you know, determining things, then then you can be part of our tribe. And yeah, fair enough, right? Like, I, I mean, whether you think there's veracity to those claims or not, there is a, something to be said about the willingness to buy into something that is not immediately in front of your eyes or obvious to, to the people around you. And so I think that, you know, while I do think that the particular form of nonsense that we're talking about as a organizing principle is particular to leftism, that desire to dismantle a lot of those natural hierarchies and willing to buy into the, those ideas. I think you could say that you could apply that to other forms of kind of civilizational cohesion. Good. So I guess you could call this in game theoretic or economic terms, it's sort of costly signals. And, you know, putting that together with, with your point that it seems more unique to the left yeah, we have other examples like the blank slate. So the obvious example that there are no individual or group differences, I mean, that could apply to women, ethnicities, or, or just individuals. And, and I mean, I suppose the blank slate is the ultimate example of nonsense as a uniform. I mean, the people who profess these beliefs have pets. Some of them have children, many of them don't actually, but, you know, surely they see their differences even in their pets you know, in, in intelligence or personality or whatever. And so, yeah, it, it seems like there is something about egalitarianism and the dismantling of hierarchy, the desire to do that, that lends itself to, to this form of costly signaling. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really can't get around the fact that the big part of liberalism and, and then the progressive variant thereafter is really about denying any kind of determinism and that man is entirely able to choose his own path, which at the end of the day, we kind of know means that actually elites choose path for man right. instead. <laughs> but, but in the meantime, there is this idea that, that every person will be able to make, you know, a pro, an identity, just a priori, they'll be able to determine their in uh, their end goals and their destiny by themselves. And they'll not be restricted by any kind of innate factor in their lives, be it class, position, intelligence, anything else. Yeah. And so that ends up being something that is perpetuated throughout kind of, yeah, a lot of our, our current system. Cool. Yeah. So Aaron, I thought the discussion that you had with um, Alex Kashuta was uh, fascinating because that was a discussion about the IDW, to be clear, that um, I thought needed to be had. And perhaps we could, you know, put, put a, you know, just elaborate, put a bit more of a, uh, a finer point on it. And, you know, I, I guess I'll start by asking you just for the, you know, the, the three people in the audience who don't know, could you describe what the ID, IDW is or was, if you think it's still really a, a cohesive entity, um, why you think it was successful and why it has failed i assume you think obviously it has now totally <laughs> crumbled yeah well it started out as kind of this loose coalition it was never really a formal thing of course it was branded i believe by barry weiss in her new york times article but it was a lot of people who had kind of been brought into the joe rogan podcast or were in the orbit of it and it's guys like sam harris and jordan peterson and ben shapiro and, and a lot of guys who were at the time saying things that were, you know, a little beyond the pale outside of the normal constraints, not allowed to be said kind of in the halls of academia. And the idea was that, you know, because this coalition spanned from what was considered, I guess, very conservative by these people like Ben Shapiro and, you know, left left leaning people like uh, like uh, Sam Harris, that there would be some kind of sensible, you know, uh, centrist position that would, you know, coalesce around these intellectuals who are able to kind of raise the level of debate and have discussions in a way that 
we hadn't seen in a long time. They would be able to evade cancel culture and they'd be able to share these ideas. And, and it was basically kind of the last gasp of liberalism. It's the, the last gasp of the idea that if we just got intelligent enough and if there's just enough free speech, then we would, and we had enough discussion about important topics, then eventually we would be able to kind of navigate these very difficult and fraught waters that only become more tumultuous in our culture. And we'd be able to kind of reestablish this neutral position where kind of everyone would be able to live and let live and we'd be able to move forward together kind of in that classically liberal sense. Mm. And I think it just fell apart because, well, they couldn't do that, right? Like, like Jordan Peterson was probably the most interesting guy out of that bunch. He was the guy saying something that was more deeply rooted in ancient wisdom than anyone else, which is why I think he had an audience that kind of moved beyond that but it became very clear as time went on that there simply wasn't a lot of common ground for many of these people to actually operate under other than some kind of vague commitment to free speech they fundamentally didn't share values and when you look at the guys like sam harris who have now come to the point where they said well yeah i'm a classical liberal but i don't care about free speech and i don't care if they censor the president of the united states and i don't care if a guy has bodies of children in his basement you shouldn't run the the story if it'll allow donald trump to get elected i mean at that point you just kind of understand that these free speech was never really the goal at the end of the day they there was a it, 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 i don't think it was intended as containment i don't think that they got together and there was a cabal of like we will now create a you know some kind of intellectual containment apparatus to keep these questions from evolving beyond the point where we're comfortable with them but i think that's exactly what it became and at least it worked for a little while but at the end of the day it, it kind of escaped the orbit and everything fell apart so let me try and steal man the other side here. Um, sure. And actually try and try and use uh, the example you give of Peterson being perhaps the most interesting figure of the bunch. Um, well, Peterson and uh, Harris, I think, did three talks, I think like Dublin, London, somewhere else, maybe two in London, uh, at the Millennium, you know, the O2 Arena, big, big stadium selling out, you know, tens of thousands of uh, seats. Um is that not hopeful? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like if if you think about it in those terms that that sounds. You know, this guy's still got you know, millions of followers on Twitter. This big podcast signed by the Daily Wire. It sounds like there is this appetite for okay. Let's just stick with Peterson. The, um, you know, a uh, a discussion about the importance of religion and ancient values. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It is good news that there is on some level a real market for this, right? And we see this with the explosion of long form content. We see this with the ability of people to, you know, now that they have this found time with podcasts and that kind of thing, they can mow the lawn and work out and drive mm -hmm. and listen to something in a way that, you know, when you had uh, destination TV, well, you got to block off 30 minutes and you got to be sitting right in front of the thing and you can't do anything else. So I think there, you know, some of it is format change. I think some of it is overload and some of it, is, some of it was the fracturing of the media sphere, when you have the ability to disseminate this kind of stuff to a very particular audience, you can draw in a lot more people as to where before, you know, you had to craft all of this content to the kind of audience that had a 10 minute attention span. And so I think there are a lot of factors involved in the rise of guys like Peterson. And at the end of the day, it's a good thing that he has an audience. I think I think overall, while I have disagreements with Peterson, I think he's a force for good. And I think that he does, it's a good thing that he gained the notoriety he did. But the question of the IDW was not, could one person be interesting or could they gain an audience? The question was, could we solve these issues? Could mm -hmm. we heal this cultural divide, right? We didn't just need a few guys to become like, you know, popular and have book deals. We were looking for people who could heal this thing and once again return us to this, again, that kind of neutral classical liberal uh, center where we didn't, where a bunch of people with different values and different end goals of life could communicate and cooperate. And I think in that aspect, it did fail. So I want to kind of give an example here that I think is interesting, and I don't think many people will have picked up on it. I remember um, not that long ago, um, I don't know if you know the thinker David Graeber, this uh, very interesting anarchist thinker who died, um, I think a couple of years ago now, um, very early age in his, his mid-50s, uh, prolific writer, um, yeah, one of the, probably the most interesting thinkers from the radical left. And uh, I remember 
Harris tweeting out maybe a few months after he had died, uh, one of Graeber's brilliant lectures, he had written this book on bureaucracy, right, which is probably something that is uh, very interesting. His analysis would be very interesting to those in uh, the distant right sphere as well. And uh, he, as part of the book tour, did this talk at Google. And uh, it's, a, it's a great talk, great Q&A, as, as you would expect from that type of audience. And Harris tweeted, tweeted it out saying, oh, I can't believe I only just heard of this guy. And I was thinking, wow, you know, I, 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 I've known, you know, I'm maybe, what, half Sam Harris's age, 20 years younger, 25 years younger, and I knew about him. And, you know, this, this guy's job is to be this intellectual who is, you know, as he says, I'm just reading books or listening to books or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm trying to find the interesting ideas. I was like, well, this is one of the most interesting guys out there. How have you only just come across him? And okay, you know, we're all allowed uh, a free pass, right? Um, but I thought that was instructive. Um, and it kind of speaks to this idea that, I've heard about in the in the distant right circles of these guys just fundamentally, even Peterson, I think you would say, they don't have the intellectual tools, the kind of like the epistemological hygiene to actually, as you say, like dissect the fundamental problems with society. And that's mainly because they are classical liberal. They agree with most of what's going on. Um, it works for them, right? Um, and... So in that sense, they kind of are controlled opposition, right? It's like this far and no further. Like what the New York Times is happy to have these guys standing in a weird forest, you know, being like, oh, look, the, the dark intellectuals, oh, you know, with the semi-bad thoughts. But it really is like this far and no further. Like we know the things that they won't talk about. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely the case. And I don't think that that's unique to really any of those guys. I don't fault guys like Sam Harris for not knowing all these people. I mean, I went to school for politics and I had never heard of this guy, you know, James Burnham. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I, I you know, spent entire degree, you know, learning about this stuff. No one, none of my professors ever mentioned any of the people beyond Machiavelli that he talks about. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the most, you know, the seminal books on political theory and just no one studies it. No one talks about it of, of of any renown and i'm not surprised because like you said these things they work outside of the you know the accepted understanding classical liberal understanding people don't want to know but it's not even in a i don't think it's even an act of choice of that kind of stuff i think that once those avenues are closed off or people just aren't in the discussion i mean are you the kind of guy who's going to go back and dig for you know a couple hundred years ago to read joseph de maestra i mean most people aren't just going to randomly do that on a lark if i hadn't run into the writings of curtis yarvin i wouldn't have heard of almost any of these mm -hmm. people the most valuable part of yarvin's work is the reading list because yeah, he knows yeah. all the guys from hundreds of years ago that no one else knows and so yeah i mean i, th I think it's true that you know it's it's a shame that these people don't maybe have some uh, access to some of that stuff but at the same time again i don't really blame them you know guys like um like harris were willing to talk to people like charles murray and so even if you know murray significantly ch uh, challenges his worldview at the very least he was willing to have a conversation with a guy who is at least some you know you know he was at least aware of him and wanted to seek that out yeah, i like the yeah. uh the idea of controlled opposition without a controller which is implicit in what you just said i mean most of the forces that are leading in, in various directions are, of course, emergent orders. There's no one controller. There's no cobble behind the scene, you know, giving Sam Harris's orders in the same way that in universities, you know, I taught in universities for 15 years and, you know, you've got Rawls in political philosophy. I'm sure you read him many times. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you've got, you know, the boogeyman, which is Nozick, you know, the libertarian. But what you don't get, you know, is, is real opposition, right? It, Nozick is the controlled opposition. And, and that's not to say someone's whispering in our ears, you can only teach Nozick as, as the opposition. It's just, it emerges. That's what we did in graduate school. We, we read Rawls and Nozick, and then, you know, we sort of understood this is the canon. So um, I like this idea of controlled opposition without necessarily many nefarious actors, because I think the reality is that's, that's not how most people, how, how most people are. Well, one of my professors made a real mistake, and when he yeah. introduced the opponents of liberalism, he introduced Alsdale McIntyre, uh -huh. and yeah. so yeah. Uh, yeah. and and from there, I was like, "Oh, this guy has something very interesting to say, which is which is very different." And so, yeah, that, that's you? that's probably the first taste I had of that, even though it wasn't mm. wasn't as yeah. deep as some of the other ones that I eventually got to. But did he? And that's after virtue, I imagine, right? 
Right. Yeah. 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 Did he influence your religious views um, or were you already religious before then? No, I've been Christian. You know, my, my family was Southern Baptist. We were at the church every time the doors were open when I was a kid, but uh, it was certainly great to find someone like McIntyre who kind of had that, that grasp. Yes. I was going to ask, actually, speaking of um, emergent orders, we've got this, um, well, we now have a situation in the United States and I, I suppose in England too, where Matt is where every agency is sort of on the same page, right? The universities have won. The universities have been captured for a while, but, you know, they produce the journalists, the teachers, the lawyers who eventually become politicians. And now we have, of course, during BLM, we had the public health officials saying, don't go to Trump rallies. Those are super spreading events. And but do go out to march for BLM. The other day, the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, right? This is they're tasked with controlling disease. They tweeted about how important pronouns are and a list of words that should and shouldn't be used that are sensitive or insensitive. It seems to me that and maybe the military, these are sort of the last bastions where you expect them to not be politicized. Now that essentially everything is captured, the FBI that we've read from the, the Twitter files, the, the military, the CDC, you know, where do we even go from here? You, you asked a guest the other day, Charles Haywood, you know, what does victory look like? And he gave his answer, but what does victory look like to you in the context of the United States, given that, that all of these institutions are captured now? Yeah. I mean, what does victory look like and what is a net, what, what is more likely to happen? I guess are two separate <laughs> questions, unfortunately. Uh, but, but I mean, at the end of the day, the answer is that the stuff that can't go on forever won't. Um, and so, institutions that have built themselves entirely around their ability to manage our massified economy and culture uh, and deliver the material promises and prosperity that kind of are, are that come with that. And just, you know, the, the faith that has been placed in expertise. I mean, you can cash that check for a long time. You can lie, you can nudge, you can push things to the limit. And we're seeing all of that now, but eventually those things break. I mean, eventually, you know, the lights turn off. Eventually the roads don't get repaired. Eventually lifespans go down and, you know, some of that stuff is all happening right now. And that starts to put, you know, kind of the pressure on those institutions. And then they've got an option they can double down and accelerate their own demise in an attempt to desperately hold on to their power, they can reform. Mm. And it's probably the, the former. Um, and so, you know, from that point, then people seek alternative institutions. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got a buddy in uh, South Africa, um, uh, Ernst. He's a conscious character on, on Twitter. He uh, writes a lot of great pieces, uh, especially one for I'm 1776. He's going to be on my show uh, oh, this cool. week talking about it. But but he, you know, he talks about how, you know, they're already there. They're they're a couple decades ahead of us. Their institutions have collapsed. They can't keep the lights on. They can't keep people safe. They can't fix potholes. Yep. Uh, they can't educate people. And so what happens? His community steps up. They, you know, Afroform and, and the people around him, they have to fill the void. And when they do, obviously, you know, there's a lot of more questions that come after that. But, you know, when you have alternative institutions that are providing things that the one the ones with credibility in theory aren't providing people notice and that's when you start seeing big shifts happen there's also a secession movement now in johannesburg i hear and that's like hmm. semi-serious so of course that's another possibility when when things break down so much hmm. that there's very little social trust left maybe that actually has the positive effect of facilitating secession yeah, I mean, I don't know that we'll ever see anything hard like that, especially in the United States. But I think what you're far more likely to see is that kind of as those institutions fail and as the you know competence of the federal bureaucracy just falls apart, eventually you're going to see certain states, especially due to America has the advantage of the federal system, you're going to have certain states that just say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to follow that. You know, you got guys like DeSantis in Florida who, you know, are feeling their oats right now, seeing how far they can kind of push the ball. And, you know, at some point when the federal government can't do this stuff and certain states are doing this stuff, then the federal government can whine all they want, but they're probably just going to have to leave them alone. And you don't yeah. need any kind of formal declaration or anything. You just 
kind of start ruling your own area. And this is how most empires fall apart. No one comes mm-hmm. by and says the Roman empire is over and hits a gong or yeah. anything like you just, they just kind of, you know, disassembles. It's a really good point because one of the things we've noticed at the federal level, and maybe this will happen more at the state level is, you know, the question of whether this is constitutional doesn't even come up for most people. So after the Dobbs decision, it became not an issue of does the constitution specifically protect abortion, but instead, do I personally kind of like abortion or not? Right. And so you had that, that was the level at which the debate took place. I really, I got an abortion once, so I think abortion's great. You know, it wasn't sort of, you know, what are the proper constitutional procedures to ratify this or not? And and maybe that happens more at the state levels too. You, you just start ignoring whole parts of the constitution Generally, I think that's bad, but but maybe that's actually going to work to the favor of people who want to decentralize. Everyone ignores the Constitution. Um, yeah, well, everyone already does, right? Yeah. Like, oh, the st- states already do. Like, we already have sanctuary states. They entirely right. ignore right. federal law. Like, yeah. they, they don't care. And the, the yeah. point is that federal law doesn't matter. What matters is the enforcement mechanism. If power's behind you, then that's the actual de facto law. And if it's not behind you, then it isn't. And so the the only question is, does the right figure this out in time, yeah, right? Like, yeah. like th- this is already true. This is already the reality on the ground. It's not something that's coming. It's in the yeah. rearview mirror. The only question is, does the right start getting stuck in this idea? Like, love a lot of things about the Constitution, but it's a dead letter. And that's yeah. just the case, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Aaron, I wanted to ask you about um, the relationship between culture and material progress so cultural degradation and general decadence i know uh, what is jacques barzun wrote that famous book from dawn to decadence um and material progress in the sense of like you know the the pinkerite or hans rosling view so you know i've heard people like pete hitchens in my country say well yes of course there's been immense material progress nobody can deny that to you so you just, you just look at the figures um but eventually when he he says two things right one it would be nice if people at least acknowledged uh, in the same breath the cultural degradation, right? So if you're going to talk about something like um, the incredible advances in, uh, for example, um, looking out, looking after children, making sure you uh, babies aren't um, dying at the age of you know, one, two, three, they're living past their fifth birthday, you know, these incredible developments in the last 200 years, then he says you also have to talk, talk about the increasing um, rates of, of abortion. And you know, mm. we're not near the Soviet Union's peak of having more abortions than uh, live births, but it's, it's close when you look at a, a country like mine. So he says, that's the first thing, you have to talk about the culture and the material in the same breath. And then the second thing is, he says, well, you know, eventually, if the, if the moral degradation, the degeneracy is so bad, that eventually will undermine the material progress anyway. Is that how you see it? And um, how, how would you respond to, you know, if, if you were speaking to someone like Steven Pinker and Hans Rosling, and they're saying, look, it's the, it's the best we've ever had it. You know, you've, you've got them in an elevator for you know, two minutes, let's say it's a long elevator. How, how, what, <laughs> what is the, you know, the one or two line reply you make to them to say, hang on a second, you know, can we talk about something else other than line go up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have an elevator pitch, but I mean, guys like Thomas Carlyle have been talking about this for, you know, a very long time. You know, the quantification of something and and being able to see that it goes up on a spreadsheet is not the same thing as actually understanding human well-being. And there's a real question as to whether, you know, there is any escaping the fact that what the massification of production and governance and just the institutions in general seems to be inextricably tied with the moral degradation of, you know, those institutions and the peoples that they govern. I'm not sure how to solve that problem. I don't know if it is solvable. I don't know if it's, it it may be part of a a cyclical, you know, the tower of Babel always Mm -hmm. reassembles and then tears itself back apart. Right. Like, Whenever you homogenize a people enough in order to rule them in a mass way, whenever you homogenize people enough in a way to provide and produce and have them labor in a mass way, you necessarily strip out the cultural connective tissue that gives people meaning, gives people purpose, creates boundaries and borders and differentiation, you know, actual diversity, the ones where different cultures live differently and believe differently and do their own thing without having to conform to some kind of centralized homogenized 
you know, morality or mode of production. And I don't know that we can escape that, that difficulty. I don't know if there's a way around that. I think we'll always have, you know, some level of technological progress. I, I think that technology will continue to advance and be built upon itself in, in one way or another in some iteration but the idea that you know you can just kind of have this stuff forever and never face the consequences, I think, is pretty foolish. And you have to work really hard, and and I think you have to focus on a very few number of indicators, and and again, those things on the spreadsheet, in order to pretend like the average person isn't sadder, you know, and more mm -hmm. disconnected mm -hmm. than they were when they didn't have those things. Yeah. So I think this is a really good point for Johnny to come in because the segue I see here is. You spoke about the cyclical theory of you know, civilization, and I, I guess what you're saying there, correct me if I'm wrong, is you know, this is kind of uh, a pattern, right, that you see. And I know people like Camille Paglia have spoken about, you know, really interesting, although I'm not sure if you ask my uh, girlfriend, who is an art historian, she'll say it's a bit dubious. But, you know, interesting points like, uh, uh, well, the worship of things like... Um, chefs in in the fall of the roman empire you know, chefs become celebrities and you look at the statues they become more effeminate apparently no idea but these are the th interesting you know, uh correlations that people point out and i assume that that's what that's kind of what's informing you there that you know as as people think it's getting better and you know uh, you, you you often see this cultural degradation that goes hand in hand but i think someone like johnny would say we are finally at a point where maybe we can um we can put a halt to the cyclical nature of things with something like genetic engineering. And we can, for example, go to Mars, right? The Greeks and the Romans didn't have that option and perhaps mm. start again. You know, we can have a, um, an Oren McIntyre dissident right colony on Mars. Um, and that's a lot better. <laughs> oh, that's, no. <laughs> that's a lot better than just collapse or nuclear Armageddon. What do you, what do you mm. say to that? Uh, well, or, sorry, was Jonathan going to... Well, feel free to uh, <laughs> to embellish well, maybe, my wonderful maybe vignette. A, a decent way to, to bridge that is I was going to raise disagreements on the right on certain moral issues. In particular, you probably know Richard Hanani a couple days ago blogged about this, and, and we, we've talked about it. I actually agree with him on this, probably disagree with you. Um, euthanasia abortion and and yeah we can talk about genetic selection too that's just that's an interest of mine i've written about it i'm in favor of it but that is to say um genetically selecting for traits that like intelligence and personality traits and things like that once it's available those are pretty big disagreements among people mm. on the right and I, mm. I know you interviewed morgoth the other day and morgoth would definitely be opposed to a lot of this um yeah so what do you think like is there yeah, what do we have in common at the end of the day if people like, let's just take you and Richard Hanania deeply, deeply disagree about abortion, euthanasia, and I'll throw in genetic enhancement because I know he agrees with me on that. Um, what do you have in common? There, there is a lot, but but what do you think the splitting points are kind of on the right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back to that old neo-reactionary trichotomy, right? Like, do you have, you got your guys who are actual traditionalists. And then you've got your guys who are just tech, tech optimists and that kind of thing. And yeah. one thing that you share is that you are looking to the reassertion of some form of uh, natural hierarchy, but yeah. for the tech optimists, it's engineering it. And for the traditionalists, it's the natural return of it. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, in any type of political disagreement, coalitions are always going to have fracturing points. And the question is, can you hold together long enough to have to have that out once you win? Right. And so yep. I, I don't even know if Hanania, you know, qualify or characterizes himself as right wing. I don't think I've seen him explicitly say that, but maybe he does. He, uh, he but, does. But if he that's, does. Maybe he doesn't okay. advertise it much, but yeah. Fair enough. But yeah, I mean, you know, there, there are plenty of people that I deeply disagree with, um, you know, on things of the right. And, you know, as Charles Haywood says at the moment, we just don't have time for those kind of disagreements, you know, okay. like, yeah, they're absolutely essential and we got to work those out. But, you know, there's, there's just more dire situation at the moment. We'll, we'll have to get to that bridge, you know, whenever we get there. I agree but to be that. a Marxist, they're going to get that those things are going to happen, right? I think this is, this is what the yeah. materialists would say. The people who are talking about genetic engineering, this stuff, it's happening now. So 
I feel like if if we don't have a discussion, if we don't prepare, you know, if the bioethicists aren't talking to the politicians and you know the briefers, the staffers in Washington, then you're going to get certain laws, or you might be outcompeted by China. I think these are like these are existential oh, questions. Oh, it's too late. Like land is right about this. Acceleration has taken us beyond this point. We're mm-hmm. no longer making these decisions. The yeah. the process is making the decisions for us, and so. Uh, I mean, we can we can armchair quarterback this, which is essentially what we're doing at this point, because we're not really having the impact on these processes. But yeah, to some extent, like the te- the tech optimists are right about this, like you're going to either turn into the skid or, you know, it's going to move beyond you. Uh, I think that um, the, the question is, like, does Faustian's man engineer his way out of the cycle? And my my answer is probably not. And the answer for someone like Hananio or, or Jonathan might be probably so. But mm-hmm. that's really not a that that's either way. We don't really have a ton of impact on that. I mean, obviously, you yeah. can work to opt you know, to engineer yourself out of that. You would have to take active step to that. But I think for like I said, for a most part of this kind of the the horse is out of the barn either way, right? So it's kind of out of our hands. Yeah. So maybe what's going on now is, you know, we're forming coalitions, so to speak, but we're also, you know, for potential political power, maybe that'll come, maybe not, but also laying the groundwork for, for the future. So our arguments have no chance of being heard by, let's say, bureaucrats in Washington. Obviously not. Mm. Um, if they did hear them, they, they wouldn't listen to them. But maybe for for who comes next or for people in other countries or something like that. Do you you agree with that? Yeah. And, you know, I think Spangler's right that at the end of every civilization, that's when the scholars start actually writing down the things that have already taken place. They they kind of codify the essence of the civilization, but it's already played out. Right. So we're. You know, even if you're completely into the cyclical view, we're just playing out our role in it, right? Like that yeah. mm-hmm. this is what comes at the end of the civilization. The scholars then look at everything that's happened. They break it down. They analyze it. They they uh, immortalize it in the tome. And then you move on, you know? So whether you whether you think that we're planning for the future or we think we're playing our role in the cycle, either way, you know, this is where we've got to be. It sounds like you're a bit I- of, um, well, I won't say a pessimist, but... It, it might be that th- this is sort of inevitable. So the arguments we're making, they're they're fun for us. We're sort of recording them in the way that you write a novel or something, and future <laughs> people will grin when they when they see this. Oh yeah, it's kind of cool that some people saw what was actually happening, but yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. you're not actually going to be able to avert these cycles or actually, you know, do anything that that yeah that influences in a deep way how things play out. Is that kind of your view? I think that a lot of people who look at some level of determinism or some level of cyclical history or whatever immediately just go like, well, this is a black pill. This is terrible. This is pessimistic. I don't think that's true. I don't think understanding that like humans always die doesn't mean that you don't then understand that you need to live the best life you can. Like Mm -hmm. understanding the inevitability and limitations of something does not make it horrible. It Mm -hmm. gives you an understanding of what your life is about and what your aims should be and your orientations. We are defined by what we are not. And I think that understanding that like like humans, civilizations have a limited lifespan and they go through ages doesn't mean that there isn't heroic things to do in those times. Doesn't mean there isn't meaning and joy and beauty to be found there. I, I, I get the initial like, oh, I don't have total control over every aspect of my life. Therefore, everything is terrible. But like, get over it. Become an adult. You never had yeah. con- entire control over your life. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. suck it up and become a man and like do your right. job. Like, this is what life is about. Understanding that you are in a time and a place, you are a specific person with a specific goal that you must achieve and, you know, get it done. That's what makes things matter. That is a beautiful way to end it. Matt, do you want to go to the final questions? Yeah, I, I guess before that, though, I kind of wanted to uh, to maybe go a bit theological at the end. And, you know, I, I did this uh, essay competition on ideas sleep furiously and one of the entrants sadly he didn't actually submit the essay but he submitted this as a controversial opinion uh and the opinion was 
God's seal in humans is intelligence, and our only purpose is to climb this invisible ladder. I guess the point being, we eventually fuse with like we we be, we you know, we don't become material anymore. And I I kind of like this idea, and I, I was I, it had me uh, you know, it's kind of like a a two a.m. marijuana thought uh, that yeah. you don't want to take too far. But um, I, I mean, I, I, how is your how, how have your theological readings and your your religious upbringing how how how's that informed your understanding of something like the cyclical theory of civilization because i feel like you could go one of two ways there you could say well actually maybe this is our destiny right to to you know, uh, if we if we are i'm not religious but if we are you know, uh, the chosen people you know, how however you want to uh, understand that um you know, god made us for a purpose then maybe it is to you know, become the the people that spread this the you know, love whatever I don't whatever metaphor you want to to do you know, to be, to become a galactic civilization um, and to just yeah to, to to take that kind of black pill which I know you're saying you're not taking it's it's, it's the opposite of uh, well it's just you know this is you you live you die and every civilization has uh, risen and, and it will fall when this is really within our grasp to colonize the galaxy to not uh have to worry about um you know, being wiped out by an asteroid or some exogenous threat um could you not reconcile those two things the 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 theology and the uh the cyclical nature of history yeah i don't think that um understanding that at some point all civilizations in means that somehow you don't try to build the best civilization you have and protect the people who matter to you and mm -hmm. escape disaster and that kind of thing. This is, I think, always a, a, a danger of, you know, we see Christianity and other religions run into this time and time again, right? Immunize the eschaton, you know, well, we're going to, we're going to be able to uh, either we don't have to defend our, ourselves and our nation and our, you know, whatever, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter and we're all going to go to heaven or we can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, ac actually the long run because we're going to make this all better now. And both of those things are false. Like you're going to continue to live a human existence and you're going to have limitations, but that doesn't mean that while you're doing that, you shouldn't strive for excellence and mm -hmm. defending your culture and defending, you know, and, and, you know, yourself from an asteroid or expanding, you know, different things. You know, the Christian faith never kept people from having, you know, empires, right? And so, in fact, it facilitated them in many ways. Yep. And so I, I don't think that this is a restriction on that at all. I think, though, there's still a value in understanding that at the end of the day, you are human, and there are limitations, you two are mortal. And you know, if you're constantly denying that, and then you get into things like, uh, you know, thinking that you can change your gender, or that you, you know, you can do all kinds of other things that you can't do, simply because you are unbound by your your nature and uh, your limitations. And uh, I think that's always the mistake. I don't think that you, you then have to abandon your ability to expand and, and defend your civilization. But, but what if you, like me, believe that there's only darkness? I want to keep this going for as long as possible. And so striving for something like immortality or just like an extra few hundred years, you know, it's totally, I know, again, it's the infant mortality thing that distorts the average. So people did live uh, once they got beyond the age of 30 to, you know, 70, 80, 90. There are records of people in you know, the year 1600 living to 100 years of age, but uh, not many people, right? That's the point. So um, it is something of a social construction when you ask people oh would you like to live till 200 and they say oh no you know get bored right? like, obviously that's nonsense you would adapt we we do adapt if if you had the health of say a 70 year old there probably will be a time when you're con you, know, you, you you're considered incredibly unhealthy to not be able to run a marathon at the age of 102 and so some of those things i guess you know i totally agree with you obviously christianity doesn't necessarily uh, you know, prevent you from doing that but it, it, it is a these things are operating systems which you know, if I feel like if enough people run them, then you often end up with, okay, maybe this is a historical, you can certainly tell me if it is. But, um, you know, for example, I'll, I'll use, uh, we'll go back to the genetic engineering and the Republicans and this fear about the right gaining control that Richard and Arnie have spoken of, you know, bans on stem cell research, you know, things that uh, people on our side would say, look, no, I, I really would like to be able to, you know, have uh, a limb regrown if it's blown off or whatever. Um, I would like to be able to have another hundred years with my loved ones. And if we run the wrong operating systems, the wrong culture, then 
you you don't get that type of innovation. And we are at a tipping point when, uh, well, I guess we've already acknowledged that this stuff's happening happening anyway. It's just who has the control and you know, well, what leverage can we have over it? But um, I'll, I'll let you uh, do with that rant what you will. Yeah, progress isn't an infinite good, right? Like, uh, yeah, you mm -hmm. might be able to, you know, get another 40 years on your lifespan. You also might genetically engineer a pathogen that, uh, you know, ends up spreading around the world and causing a global mm -hmm. pandemic and shredding your global economy and destroying the education and health of you know, children and forcing people to take a vaccine that may or may not have serious, you know, like, Sorry, is this you understand what, or? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, you know, just in, in a weird world where science maybe isn't always an infinite good and isn't always a benefit, I think it might for a moment, you know, <laughs> everybody could take a moment and maybe a little bit of hubris, you know, put mm -hmm. it away and say, uh, maybe there is, there is, maybe there is a problem with infinite exploration. Maybe there are, maybe there is knowledge that is difficult or dangerous. Maybe we need to better understand things before we just assemble those barriers. To be clear, I don't think we're capable of that at this point. Like, I, mm -hmm. like it would be nice if we could do that, but I don't think we have the self-control. I think people will continue to, to reach for these things, uh, whether they understand that those are healthy boundaries or not. But if you're asking me if those healthy boundaries exist and they should be respected, yeah, I think there are areas in which probably we could understand why there are very serious consequences to just unfettered, say, research and genetic engineering. What What are the, let, let's get specific, what are the really hard boundaries that you would say this far and no further? I mean, that, that's a good question, right? Like you, you've got serious problems of things, I guess, like cloning and, and, and any technology around that. But again, it's hard to say when that begins and when that ends because you, you, everyone again wants to elongate their life. So, you know, do you grow organs? Do you augment people? That kind of thing. That's going to be a really difficult thing. And then what's the upkeep and maintenance on that stuff? Again, I think that we're probably going to run into a hard limit of supply chains and the ability to like reliably service the advancements that people end up creating before we actually run into like the ethical problem of, kind of the, the end stage of these things. I think that the, the hard limit will be when, you know, people want to provide this kind of healthcare cost-free to 8 billion people and the maintenance that that follows. Like, we can't keep up with the healthcare we have now. We can't possibly hope to service the populations we're generating in first world countries at the moment anyway. And so the idea that we could just infinitely produce life-extending treatments and those kind of things and then also service them without any kind of issue, never running up into this kind of barrier seems kind of silly to me. Not that that answers your specific questions, mm. kind of where I guess these these experimentations run to. But I think we'll hit the, I think we'll hit the material limits before we hit the the ethical questions at the end of the day. Do you, Do you not think people could have said the same thing about something like antibiotics, though? You know, this incredible, wondrous drug that we basically discovered by accident. Sure, but we don't make antibiotics in America anymore. Right. Like we found that out during the pandemic, like actually we had offshored all of our stuff. So it's not just like the knowledge of it. Right. We're too foolish to maintain our own supply chains. We've mm. we be, for for, oh, I see for what you mean. Yeah. yeah, for for profit margin and ease of, you know, the, these kind of things, we have sacrificed reliable delivery of food and energy and medicine that are essential to life, things that were miracles a few decades ago. We've now outsourced to people who literally engineer pathogens that then go into our population and kill, you know, millions of people. And so even if we can keep the actual technology up, which is its own question, I don't think we're smart enough to to actually control ourselves and our impulse to grow infinitely. And I think that is the real problem at the end of the day. It's the Pandora's yeah. box. I didn't think we were going to go here, but I'll just do just a really quick chime in before we do the final questions. I think the really interesting questions here are not whether, I don't know, we should pursue this or not pursue it. So like gain of function research is your example or, What's going on down the street for me is actually using phage viruses instead of antibiotics to kill bacterial infections because we're actually running out of antibiotics. It's not a supply chain problem. That's very short term. It's actually a problem that there's more and more resistance to the existing antibiotics, mm -hmm. right? And um, as that happens, we're probably going to move toward a more technological solution, which is both more efficacious and more dangerous. Um, and that is using viruses, which have been attacking bacteria for billions of years, 
engineering them in specific ways to attack bacterial infections. It's already going on, again, down the street from me. They're probably going to introduce it in India. Um, I think the interesting ethical questions for people like us, I'll just say sort of thoughtful people, is not are you pro or against this, but like how can this reasonably be used in a responsible way? And in a place like the United States, an increasingly low-trust society, in which the agencies are staffed by affirmative action hires and by people who probably party loyalty, party loyalists and things like this, can they be trusted with sort of deploying this technology in the right way? And I think the answer is clearly no. And, and, and so it's going to be deployed in some places and not in others, maybe responsibly in some places, not in others. And I actually think the ethical questions are going to be much richer and more interesting in the very near future with a lot of these technologies. And those are going to be sort of like, what's the right move, given that Singapore is doing this, India has banned it, China is subsidizing it, and um, it's not going to be sort of, are you for it or against it? But, you know, that's that's my view anyway. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to remember, like, the same type of, you know, the same type of hubris that says we can just kind of create this infinitely is also the stuff that created the social engineering that you're worried about that will then deliver yeah, this in, yeah. in, 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 in a way that's uh, terrible and will let it fly out, right? Like you can't completely remove these two things from each other. It's nice to think that you can always just point the Leviathan the right way, but the existence of the Leviathan might mean inevitably you generate the problem you're trying to solve. I think this is right, but let me ask you just a quick follow-up question on this because... You know, I, this is, again, this sort of traditionalist versus, I don't know, you might say futurist or something. It's an artificial divide. But, you know, once the cat is out of the bag, kind of like the point you make about liberalism, whatever post-liberalism looks like, it's going to draw on some elements of what's come before. We've been socialized in this soup and so on. Presumably, the same thing goes with technology. So, like, you know, it's possible we could imagine in theory that some people will live like the Amish, you know, 200 years from now. But but I actually doubt it. I don't think that's going to be possible. Do you think it's going to be possible once technology continues to advance to basically retreat to an Amish style lifestyle? Or are you going to instead sort of going to have to reconcile your values with whatever the technology is in a way that kind of balances these things? What, what do you think about that? Well, again, I think the, the the thing that we think about with technology is its mass availability. Yeah. And so our idea of technology is that once it's created, everybody has it. But that's not actually how it works at all, right? In fact, for most of history, the lack of mass production meant that technological advances weren't light, widely available all across the globe the instant they were created. Yep. Yep. And so I think the far more likely scenario that you're going to talk about won't be completely Amish communities. But what will happen is you'll have different communities with certain levels of tech availability and their ability to maintain infrastructure. If you don't have this global scaffolding that's running around and installing this stuff in all these third world countries that otherwise wouldn't have developed it and would have been able to maintain it, then they're just not going to have it and people are going to live largely without it. This is why we see countries that like have cell phones, but they don't have like other, they, they, people don't regularly use toilets, right? Like mm -hmm. you're, you're going to see those kinds of gaps in technology. And so I think you'll see is certain kinds of technology will perpetuate in the future. They'll be iterated on, they'll be incorporated into life. And then I think people will probably build more traditional lives that do incorporate those different types of technologies. But I think what you won't see is this widespread constant pushing and adoption of every new technology globally on a regular right. basis. I think if the infrastructure for that, when it collapses, will kind of fundamentally change the way that our civilizations form. So I have one interesting audience question that I've picked out. So uh, this is, this is uh, one of those annoying ones where you really have to dial in on the detail. Assuming uh -oh. Aaron could undo one aspect of the post-60s culture with a snap of his fingers, which one would it be and why? So you're only allowed Ooh. one policy or aspect of culture. I guess it doesn't have to be a policy. Sure. Um, the problem is the interconnection of so many. Yeah. Um, I, if I was just going to snap say this and I haven't given any real thought, so so forgive me if this is a, <laughs> is a sloppy answer, but I'd say probably the, the, um, the ability to provide a income for a family um, to, to, 
to, to have a, a single income earner mm-hmm. and to have a community of people with, in a family, like not like, uh, like obviously the nuclear family still exists, but, but re- returning to a culture where like, you know, wives share time with each other and, and work to raise children in a community rather than living lives of total isolation in suburbs and that kind of thing. Um, I think that uh, would, that would be, that would be probably the, the thing that immediately comes to mind. Again, I don't know. I don't know if that's the yeah, best yeah. answer, but it's the no, one I that think, comes to mind. I think that's right a really away. interesting one. Yeah. And as always, if you would like to hear our guest response, then you can become an ISF supporter. Who is the smartest person you've ever met? Uh, well, that's changed significantly here recently. I guess I've made a lot more people. Um, I, I, I guess I would have to say. Who's the critic that you most respect? Critic of your worldview, critic of your writing? There are a lot of people who are exploring that space who have very good criticisms about kind of uh, where we're going and and how we're going to get there. And so, yeah, that would be the first thing that comes to mind in that area. What is your most controversial opinion? Um, it, it, of course, I guess it depends what audience you're talking to. I tend to give my my right wing one, the one that's most controversial with mm. the right wing audience, uh, which is so to gain early access to our podcasts, our films narrated articles, and much more, you can become a paid ISF supporter for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 per year. It should go without saying that heterodox publications like ISF really cannot survive without your support. So thank you for keeping the show on the road. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. It was a great discussion.